preaching the Bible to you for almost five years now. July will be five years. And I just want to say up front, thank you for being just an awesome, great church that allows me the opportunity to do this. Uh, I am very, very blessed that I get to preach to you and sometimes yell at you a little bit and challenge you a little bit and actually be able to, to open up God's Word and, and present it to you. I'm thrilled and very blessed, and I wanted to take a moment as we move into Esther and just stop and pray, thank the Lord for what's happening in the dim people, but then also ask His blessing on our time today. So pray with me if you would. Our Father in heaven, we are grateful to be here, and Lord, we uh, just kind of celebrate and echo what we've even sung about already today, that you know us and you know our name and you know our fears and our tears and our cries, and that you're, you're not a distant God, you're involved in our lives Lord, we thank you that uh, we can know you, and we do want to know you. We want to know you more. Lord, we thank you for what's happening with the dim people and just all of the years and effort and money that has led to this point, to these people hearing about you in their own language for the first time ever. Uh, Lord, we, we love that, and we, we know that you love it, and that there's rejoicing and celebrating in heaven over that. And Lord, we, uh, we just, we think you're awesome, that your grace that you would save us, that you would care for us. And Lord, do bless this young, fledgling church as it gets established, and bless the team there as they seek to teach and instruct and help and see people grow. But Lord, bless us today. We're no longer a young, fledgling church. We were uh, about three decades ago when this church was first started, but that's not us anymore. Nevertheless, we understand that we need you, and with humility and reverence and needy hearts, frankly. We come to your word asking you to speak to us and to challenge us today. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let me recap the story of Esther. Okay, Esther is a story in the Old Testament scriptures about 2500 uh, BC, excuse me, 500 BC, about 2500 years ago. And what we've learned over the last couple weeks is that we're introduced as a man named Xerxes. Xerxes is a king. He's rich. He's powerful. He rules the known world at the time. He throws a party to end all parties. He throws a six-month binger, and they have unlimited food and drink, and they get drunk. And in his drunken stupor, he starts to make bad decisions and get bad counsel. He ends up divorcing his wife, Queen Vashti, on the spot. Xerxes goes to war. He loses that war in particular comes back home, is licking his wounds, he's a bit depressed, and in an effort to cheer, cheer himself up, he begins to run season number one of The Bachelor, where they're going to bring in all these young, beautiful virgins to try out to be his queen only. It is not a voluntary uh, competition, it's something that you're drafted into, you have to partake in. This is something that isn't even a beauty contest, that's really watering it down at its core, it's a, it's a sex competition. And who wins this competition actually happens to be a young Jewish girl, a beautiful girl named Hadassah or Esther as she's known in the book. And only no one knows she's Jewish because her adopted parent Mordecai instructs her to not tell anyone and to keep her faith covert. So Esther plays her part. Esther keeps her mouth shut. Esther participates in the competition, has her one night with the king, and then Xerxes makes her the queen, and that's the, the cliff note version of where we left it off, and we pick the story back up in chapter 2, verse 19. I'll do my best to talk fast this morning. Admittedly, I'll tell you up front, 
I have a lot of ground to cover. There's even quite a bit of history that lays the foundation for the rest of the book. If you don't hit the right historical notes here, then the rest of the book is going to start to not make as much sense. So bear with me. We'll get to some applications sprinkled throughout, and especially at the end. But here's where we pick it up in chapter 2, verse 19. When the virgins were gathered together the second time, then Mordecai sat in the king's gate. So two notes. One, we're not sure what the second assembly of the virgins was for. Our best guess is that Xerxes liked season one of The Bachelor so much that he decided to do season two. You say, how could he do that? He just got a, a new wife. He just got a new queen. Well, I'll remind you, he has a harem. He has concubines. It's not like there's extreme fidelity to the queen, even though she is the queen. So that's our best guess. But we learn in this moment that Mordecai sits in the king's gate. And that's important to note. When it says sits in the king's gate, what that means is that Mordecai actually had an official public position. In these days... Business was transacted and uh, laws were adjudicated actually at the gate. So those who ruled in those positions would sit at the gate. Those who wanted rulings or wanted to get some advice, they would come and stand at the gate. But this is a place, kind of almost like a court, you could say, was at the gate and he has a seat at the gate. If you remember historically, Absalom went to the gate, and there day by day he led the men away from his father David. If you remember in Proverbs 31, there's this virtuous woman who her husband is blessed by her, and we learn in verse number 23 of Proverbs 31 that her husband is known in the gates when he sitteth among the elders of the land. So to sit at the gates means that Mordecai, we don't know how junior or senior he was, but we do know that he at least had some sort of public office in the Persian government. And this helps us understand a bit of the profile of this man. Verse 20, Esther had not yet showed her kindred nor her people as Mordecai had charged her. For Esther did the commandment of Mordecai like as when she was brought up with him. So Esther historically obeyed her father and was a good girl of sorts. And she still is obeying Mordecai and choosing to keep her faith covert. We talked about this last week. God's for an overt faith, not a covert faith. But here, Mordecai is saying, Esther, don't open up. Don't tell him you belong to God. Don't tell him you love his word. Don't tell him you want to follow God. Just go with the flow. Be in the current. Just, just batten down the hatches. Don't say anything. And she obeys. Now let me say, I do think that there are many times where you don't have to lead with your faith. Okay, so for example... If you go into a job interview and they say, tell us about yourself and why you'd be a good candidate, I don't know that it would be a great idea to say, well, me, um, I love Jesus, I know Jesus, I pray to Jesus, I read a book about Jesus, I hope that you know Jesus too. Actually, I hope right now to take 10 minutes and share with you about Jesus. If that's your approach, that may explain your unemployment, okay? That's, that's probably not the best way. You don't necessarily have to always lead with your faith. But if your approach to life and to relationships is to conceal your relationship with God, often purposefully because you don't want to be mocked or because you're scared you won't be with the in crowd or you know your boss isn't a Christian or you'll be opposed, you just don't want someone to dislike you. If the way you approach life is, well, I'm scared that I will set their teeth on edge and I'm scared that I will limit my upward mobility in the workplace. And so I'm just going to try to 
tenderly walk around through life and pick and choose when to share my faith and, and, and be covert about it, that's not good. You don't have to lead with it always in every situation and in every conversation, but to have a, I'm not going to be overt with it and I'm going to purposely limit it is not a good thing. And some of you do that. Some of you do what Mordecai does. Some of you do what he told Esther to do. Some of you were taught to do this. You know, just don't talk about religion. Don't talk about politics. You know, keep those private. Keep those to yourself. Don't make waves. Don't talk about that. And that's just never in the scriptures. God consistently calls his people to have a public faith. This is why in 2 Corinthians and in Ephesians, we are called to be ambassadors. What is an ambassador? Okay, I worked retail for a number of years, and we had brand ambassadors who would come into the stores for Whirlpool or for Samsung. Guess what the Whirlpool brand ambassador talked about? Whirlpool. Guess what Samsung brand ambassadors talk about? They talk about Samsung. If you were to be a brand ambassador who never talked about the brand, you would say, you're a terrible employee. Like, fire them and get somebody else who will talk about what they're supposed to. And if you are an ambassador for Jesus, but you never open your mouth and you never talk about him, you have no public faith, and you try to conceal your faith consistently, then you have to know that you're not doing your job, so to speak, and that the Lord's not pleased with that. That's not a good thing to have this covert faith. So be public with your faith. Some of you don't want to be baptized because baptism is a kind of a public faith thing. We'll have a baptism here today. Almost every week we do. That's a public faith thing. And some of you won't do that because it's public. That's not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing to have a public faith. Some of you, you there's conversations where people, they, they trash Jesus. They trash Christianity at your workplace or at your school. Or the professor is going after the dumb evangelicals once again. And, and you're scared to open your mouth. You don't open your mouth. Don't be that person. Don't be that person. That's where Esther and Mordecai are in this moment. And we're told in those days where they're still concealing while Mordecai sat in the king's gate that two of the king's chamberlains, Big Thin, not Little Thin, but Big Thin, and Teresh of those which kept the door. So stop there for a minute. Remember what a chamberlain is. We covered this last week. A chamberlain is a eunuch. What's a eunuch? A eunuch is, by definition, a guy who used to be happy, okay? A eunuch is someone who's been, there's no way to, like, tiptoe around it. A eunuch is someone who's been castrated purposely by those who are in authority. And we saw that those who kept the harem, those who kept the king's women, were eunuchs, and this happened to them. It's deplorable, it's wicked, it's dark, but somewhat logical, you could say, okay, I don't want you to have the same sex drive when you're around all my women. I don't want you to be able to impregnate one of, one of them. Like, that would make a little bit of sense. But why these guys? These guys keep the king's door. Like, they're the guards at the door. Why, why would you make eunuchs of them? And this was very commonplace, not just in the harem, but in many of the servants, because practically castration means less testosterone. Less testosterone means a level head. It means that you're far more docile, you think clearly many times, and if this happened before puberty, this would cause you to grow taller, this would cause you to have fairer skin, so that the king's secret service or his guards actually looked bigger and, and fairer, and, and just, they just looked awesome, and, and 
What's the word I'm looking for? Not gentle. Uh, they looked handsome. That's the word I'm looking for. Handsome. This would actually kind of be something that the king would do. And not to mention the psychological effects that would take place on somebody if you did this to them to make them your servant. So this happens all the time. And here are these guys who are, in fact, eunuchs. And it says they were wroth and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. Of course they are. Okay, how many saw that one coming? Back to point one. They were made eunuchs, okay? So it doesn't take a lot of theological work to connect these dots. Make me eunuch, I want to kill you, right? Like that's, that seems like a natural domino effect. I feel that maybe I would, I would feel the same way. And here they are wanting to assassinate the king. Uh, not to be a spoiler, but this is a failed assassination attempt, although 15 years later, Xerxes will be assassinated, and he will die by assassination in 465 B.C. Verse number 22, the thing was known to Mordecai. So Mordecai finds out. Esther's dad. He finds out, and now he's, he's in the know. We don't know how he knows. Maybe, uh, you know, a little birdie told him. Maybe he overheard a conversation that he wasn't supposed to, but he finds out. And Mordecai's left with a decision Am I going to do a good thing for a bad man? Am I going to let the king know? I, I would have to think there's at least part of Mordecai that's like, I'll let this one go. Like, I hope you succeed. I'm not going to help you, but I'm going to not help you. Like, I'm, I'm not going to stand in your way, right? This is the same king that rips his daughter away, that defiles her. That Like, this, he's a nasty dude. He's a bad dude. Is he going to let it go and not say anything? Or is he going to step up and say something and we find that he told it to Esther the queen, and Esther certified to the king thereof in Mordecai's name. That's an important phrase to remember, that she was sure to give Mordecai credit. He, here's what he said. And when inquisition was made of the matter, so they get the FBI involved, they do the investigation, they do the research. Is treason really happening? Is this true? It was found out, therefore they were both, Big Thin and Teresh, hanged on a tree. So they find out it's all true, and they execute them. So two notes. One, when it says hanged on a tree, and I mention this now because it's going to come up later with gallows and the same sort of execution is going to come up later in the story. Uh, when it says hanged on a tree or later in Esther when it says gallows, it's the same word. Uh, what, what that means is not, don't think like Western. Don't think someone sitting on a horse and a noose around a branch and, you know, yeah, pat the horse and, and then you're left, left there hanging Highly unlikely that that's the way it happened. When it says hanged on a tree, it means quite literally. So this could be impaled, like just a giant stake that you're impaled on and you die. The Persians often did that. Or it could be crucifixion. Jesus was hung on a tree, okay? And the Persians invented crucifixion, and then it was perfected later by the Romans. So it's, it's highly improbable there's a rope involved here. It's highly likely that this is impaled or crucifixion. Nevertheless, they're dead. And we're told that it was written in the book of the Chronicles before the king. So the scriptures make it very clear that Esther said this is Mordecai who found this out, and she certified in Mordecai's name, and then this is chronicled or written down in the official court records in the presence of the king. So we know at least twofold that the king knew that Mordecai was the man. He found it out. He tipped us off. We investigated, we found the people, we found the bribery, we found the payments, we found the plan. They were executed, and all this is recorded, and the king knows at least twice that Mordecai is the man who saved his life. 
And Persian kings were notorious for rewarding loyalty. It's, it's probable that Mordecai's motivation for telling the king is not because he just wanted to do a good thing. It's probable that he wanted a reward. Because Persian kings would, if you stepped up and you were loyal, they would generally give you money, give you land, give you title. They would take care of you. And they created an incentivized system so that people would want to help them in these moments. And we're left wondering, is something going to be given to Mordecai? Is, is he going to get a reward for this? How many of you think he should get a reward for this? Yeah, like something, like a, a note in the file, a gold star, a, a lifetime supply of Doritos. Give him something, right? I mean, he saved your life. And we're going to find out that Mordecai does not get anything. And some of you have this boss. You're like, I could save their life and they won't give me a raise. Uh, so Mordecai is in this position. Chapter 3, verse 1. After these things, after what things? Well, the things I just said, <clears throat> but I will make note that you see this phrase, after these things, twice in the book of Esther. We looked at one last week, chapter 2, verse 1, said after these things, and that indicated a big chunk of time. Chapter 1 was year 3 of Xerxes' reign. Chapter 2 was year 7. There was a four-year gap. We're going to find uh, next week that chapter 3 is year 12 of Xerxes' reign. So there's a five-year gap in between Mordecai finding out telling about the assassination plot, and then this promotion that's about to take place. There's a five-year gap. We know historically, you can even like read in the Encyclopedia Britannica, that Xerxes did two things. Number one, he involved himself in what Britannica calls harem intrigues. So he became infatuated with women, and he also did a number of construction projects. He built a new palace. He already had two but he needed a third one, apparently. He built a new treasury. He built a new throne room called uh, the Room of a Hundred Columns. He just started building stuff and spending his money left and right. And you need to know that because that will, that will bear on the story here in a little bit when the money starts to come into play and he ultimately begins to become a little bit strapped for cash. We know archaeologists have told us that uh, many, many of the projects that Xerxes started actually were completed halfway. He didn't get to get through them, partially because he was executed at a relatively young age, but partially because they began to run out of money. They had planned on getting a ton of taxation from the Greeks. We're going to go to Greece. We're going to conquer. You be our vassal state. You pay us money. But they failed to conquer, and so they spent all the money on this war and to feed a million soldiers, and now they don't have any return on investment. So he starts to get a little upside down financially, but more to come on that later. We find this. After these things did Ahasuerus promote, and you're kind of expecting Mordecai's name, right? Mordecai saves him. After these things, he promoted Haman, the son of Hamatha, the Agagite, and advanced him and set his seat above all the princes that were with him. All the king's servants that were in the king's gate bowed and reverenced Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. Last bit of historical background and I apologize for so much historical background today but you need to know these things to, to get the story we just read that and you thought like okay he got passed up the Agagite guy Haman got this and, and you would breeze right past that but if you were <clears throat> a Jewish person in 500 BC or in the first century or maybe even to this day and you read that immediately off the page would have jumped the phrase the Agagite so this is a phrase of significance because the Agagites are descendants of the Amalekites 
who are the ancient tribal enemy of the Jews. That the Agagites and the Jewish people duked it out year after year after year, decade after decade, century after century. And you can read all through the scripture. You can read in Genesis, Abraham fighting with the Amalekites. You can find Moses fighting with King Amalek and the Amalekites in Deuteronomy 25 and his strategy to pick off the weak. He wouldn't fully engage in war. He was more of guerrilla warfare and would just get the weak ones on the fringes and slowly just try to eat away at the numbers, just in and out, in and out. You can read about this with Joshua and in the judges and with King Saul and with King David. They all fought the Amalekites and the Agagites, the same group of people. You would furthermore find that this is really significant because it's saying that Haman came from Agag's line. Agag was one of the Amalekite kings. And if you remember last week, we saw and we said, make note of this, it's going to come back up, that <clears throat> Haman, not Haman, Mordecai, comes from the line of Kish, who is the father of Saul. So what you're finding in the story is that you have Saul's descendant, Mordecai, and Agag's descendant, Haman, who are about to come head to head with each other. And that's highly significant because there is an entire chapter of the Bible dedicated to Saul versus Agag, 1 Samuel 15. And if you remember the story, some of you, you're going to have Sunday school memories that start to pop up in your head right now. God had told Saul, Saul, we've been fighting it out with these people and they've, they've been after us and killing us and after us. Let's be done with it. I want you to just go to war and I, I want you to wipe them out. So Saul does, and Saul wins, he's victorious, and he takes Agag captive, and he takes the livestock contrary to what God had said. God had said, kill all the animals, just be done with it. And Saul doesn't. And God sends Samuel the prophet to confront Saul and say, Saul, you are not obeying. And Saul backs up and says, oh, no, 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 I, I am, I'm being spiritual. I'm going to keep all these animals for a sacrifice. And you fill in the blank. See if you remember the phrase. Samuel tells Saul to obey is better than, right? And rebellion is as the sin of, okay, some of you remember that. You're saying it back to me. To obey is better than sacrifice, and rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. That's Saul and Agag. That's that story. And it's that day that God says, I'm done with Saul. I'm done with you. Samuel, don't ever see his face again. And Samuel grieves over that. He wants to see Saul again. Turn the page, next chapter, 1 Samuel 16. Samuel, go get a new king. Go to, go to Jesse. Find one of his sons, a boy named David. Anoint him king, right? All this traces back <clears throat> to the disobedience of Saul and Saul's household refusing to do what God said and keeping the line going. So when, when you find that you have Mordecai, the Jew, and Haman, the Agagite, who are about to face off, all of a sudden the tension, if you get the historical background, the tension of the story begins to rise. And this is literally <clears throat> going to be, hey, <clears throat> Mordecai, your great-great-great-great-great-grandfather tried to kill my great-great-great-great-grandfather, Hatfield and McCoy sort of stuff, right? So the fact that Mordecai's passed up, and it's given not just to some other Persian official, but it's given to Haman the Agagite, is of particular significance and importance. What we find is that the king had commanded that you have to bow down. So this means, likely, it's implied, that Haman was a particularly obnoxious person. 
if you were promoted to head of government or prime minister, as Haman had been, it would have been very natural in that day for people to, to kind of bow or curtsy or to show you that respect, similar to someone in the army saluting uh, an officer who's above them. It was just the, the right thing, the respectful thing to do. So the fact that the king has to command that you bow to Haman likely means he's really obnoxious and nobody's going to want to. And that's what we find in chapter 3, verse 2, but Mordecai bowed not, nor did him reverence. Haman's promoted, bow to him, give him reverence, Mordecai does it. Now, this doesn't imply worship. The king's not saying worship Haman. This isn't the three Hebrew boys in the fiery furnace, right? This isn't bow down and worship an idol. This is just give honor to whom honors do. Respect the position. We do this in reverse now. If the president walks into a room, all hail the chief plays and people stand. They stand to show honor. If the president walked in the room today, I would, I would recommend that we would all stand to show honor to the position. That's, we're not worshiping him. It's just a respectful thing to do. But Mordecai says, no, I'm not doing it. I'm not bowing down. I'm not giving him reverence. Why? Because he's bitter about the promotion? Maybe, unlikely, very likely, because he's an Agagite. Because we've, we've fought it out over and over, and our, our tribal lines, our family histories go back a long way, and we don't like each other. So, verse 3, the king's servants, which were in the king's gate, said unto Mordecai, Why transgressest thou the king's commandment? Mordecai, what are you doing? He said you have to, obey it. Now, it came to pass when they spake daily unto him. So, over and over, they're telling him, like, Mordecai, don't be an idiot. Like, you're going to get in trouble. Just bow down, just give him, give him the respect. He hearkened not unto them that they told Haman to see whether Mordecai's matters would stand. And then listen to this. This is trippy. For he had told them that he was a Jew. You see the irony? Up until this point, my man Mordecai's a jellyfish, okay? He has no backbone. Conceal my faith, conceal my faith. Don't tell people you're a Jew. Don't let them know that we're, that we're from the descendants of Abraham. Don't let them know that we believe in the God of the Bible. Then in this moment, all of a sudden, he's a Jew. Like, if you're picking a moment to stand on your principles, I have religious convictions. Like, this is a weird one. I would think that if you had to pick a moment, you'd be like, you want to abduct my daughter, and you want to just sleep with her and do whatever you want to with her? Uh, no, like, I'm sorry. Like, my, my book says I can't do that. Like, that's not an option. I have religious I would think that maybe that would be an appropriate moment to step up and be like, I'm a Jew. I'm not going to do this. But here, this isn't a right or wrong thing. This is just a, you, you really probably should. You could argue that Mordecai is in the wrong not to bow. But in this moment, now all of a sudden, he's going to pull the religious card. And we don't know what exactly he said about his Jewish history or why he wouldn't do this. But the, the text says that he's telling them he's not going to do this because he's a Jewish person. So here's, here's Mordecai. He's like many American Christians. When it's convenient for me, or I think it's at risk for me, or I think maybe it's going to be harmful for me, I'm going to clamp down on my faith, I'm going to be quiet, I'm going to be covert, I'm not going to tell anybody about it. But when it's convenient for me, oh, boss, you want me to work on Sunday? Oh, no, sorry, I, I go to church, I'm a Christian. Since when? Right? You're, you're, we never, I've known you for 20 years. You've talked about Christianity, you're inviting me to church. When did you become a Christian? Oh, I always have been. What kind are you? I'm the hypocritical kind. We've got like a whole denomination going. There's a lot of us. This is pulling the religious card when you think it's convenient for you. It's, honestly, it's a pitiful moment in the text where he's going to blame this on his God. 
And now Haman receives the oh-so-shocking news, and these, the, it's very likely that the, that the messengers don't know the Agagite and the Jewish and the history. So the, the, the text tells us that they're kind of appealing to Haman. Like, Mordecai, bow, dude, bow, bow. So he won't do it, and they like him. So they go to Haman to say, like, can he get a hall pass? Like, will you excuse him? This guy, he won't do it, but he really, it's for religious reasons. He's a Jew. Not knowing what they're going to set in motion in Haman's brain. So it says in verse number 5, When Haman saw that Mordecai bowed not, nor did him reverence, then was Haman full of wrath. So he's going to see it for himself. We don't know why he didn't notice it earlier, but he didn't notice it earlier. And he sees that he won't give him the respect that he's due, that he won't give him the approval that goes with his position, and his blood begins to boil, and his blood pressure becomes elevated, and his, his stomach goes into his chest, and, and he's, he's ticked off about it. Verse number six, here's how ticked off he is. He thought scorn to lay hands on Mordecai alone. What's that mean? Does that mean that he doesn't want to like punch him by himself? He needs to get his entourage to hold him down while he punches him or something? That he doesn't want to he doesn't want to hurt him by himself. No, that's not what it means. For they had showed him the people of Mordecai, the Jewish people, wherefore Haman sought to destroy all the Jews that were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus, even the people of Mordecai. So the reason Haman doesn't go into the crowd on that very day and strangle Mordecai to death on the spot is not because that would be too barbaric or too large. That would be too little. That would not be strong enough just to impale him on a pole. I want to kill all of them. I don't want to just kill him. I want to eliminate all of them. And when you get the history and the, and the lines then, then it makes sense. This has been going on for a long time. They've been trying to destroy each other. I want to kill Mordecai. I want to kill all of them. And on the face, it's kind of an overreaction. Not kind of. It seems like a big overreaction. But when you dig down into it and get the roots, you understand this, this man is now, he's a bulldog. He's not letting go. And I will say that I don't know that many of you are genocidal like Haman is, but we oftentimes can be like Haman and that we get a hold of something and we're not going to let it go, and that's going to be Haman in the story, that he gets a hold of Mordecai not bowing and wanting to hurt him and wanting to hurt all the people, and he's not going to let it go. He becomes this man who has a stuck in his crawl, who fixates and becomes obsessed with this one guy who won't bow down. And the crazy thing is that life's going well for old Haman. Like, this guy is promoted, this guy has power, people are showing him respect left and right. You're going to find next week that he's able to offer millions and millions of dollars to the king. He has money, he has a lot going on, but he is obsessed with this one thing that's wrong in his life that he's just completely fixated on, and isn't that us sometimes? We can oftentimes be these people that have so many blessings and so much to be thankful for. Time after time after time, day after day after day, God gives to us and blesses us, and we can make this, this giant list of all the blessings in our life, but then we have this list of two or three over here, and that's what we're preoccupied with. I would encourage you, if you've been in that boat this week, to go home today and just take out a piece of paper and start writing down all the things that you could be thankful for. It might help you get away from being obsessed with these little things 
there are these rocks in your shoe and just thank God that you got a shoe and thank God that you got a foot that works and that you can walk, right? This, this is Haman. And notice the pattern of anger in this story. I don't have many more verses today. I'm getting close to the end. Notice the pattern of anger. Chapter 1, Xerxes, angry. What does he do? He gets bad advice, divorces his wife, and in chapter 2, he's regretting it. Chapter, uh, chapter 3, anger, turns to malice, turns to violence, which is exactly what Jesus teaches in Matthew chapter number 5. Jesus says that hatred and murder are on the same road, just one's a little further down the road, just a different mile marker. That when you hate someone in your heart, you've committed murder against them in your heart. And notice in chapter 2 that this anger of Haman is going to spill over onto the innocent people who have little to do with the situation, which is always the way it works when you're angry. That I'm mad at her, you're, you're just like your mother, and so you kick the dog, like the dog had something to do with it, right? You're mad at your boss because they embarrassed me, they called me out in front of everybody else instead of calling me to the side and made me look like an idiot, so I'm going to take that anger home with me, and now it's going to spill over onto the kids, and I'm going to be chippy, and I'm going to have a bad attitude, and I'm going to be cranky, and I'm going to be sharp with them. I'm going to scroll through Facebook, and I've, I've followed this person, this person, this person, and all they do is tell me what's wrong with the world, and 10 minutes in, I'm angry. Some of you, your social media feed serves that purpose. You don't keep up with friends. It just makes you angry. And then you carry that into your relationships, and you wonder why marriage isn't great today or last week, and you wonder why your relationships are going sour, because you're, you're an angry person, and your anger is spilling over onto the people that are around you. And anger all through the story and, and all through the Bible and all just through human history, just look at the lives around you of people that are angry, you find that it hurts and it does damage. And, and I'd, like for, I'd like to spend a moment, I don't know that I have time for it, but I'd like to spend a moment just to say, pay attention to your anger. Like, just this lesson alone could save your life. And I don't even mean that in a hyperbolic way. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not talking theoretically. For real, could save your life, could save your marriage, could save your parenting and your relationships with your children. If you are angry, often first of all recognize the problem don't belittle it well it's not that bad i mean it doesn't spill over that much it's, it's not it's not very often that i'm angry recognize it for what it is it's a problem and then work to fix it some of you you have you have this broken soundtrack that plays through your head that is i can't change that i can't fix that i've tried that it's just the way that i am and well my dad was angry well i'm irish whatever these lame excuses for why you can't fix your anger, yes, you can. With the help of God, yes, you can. That is practically and theologically inaccurate. It's practically inaccurate because your whole life has been a long series of events of you doing stuff that at the moment you didn't think you could do and you didn't want to do, but you figured out how to do it. Remember tying your shoes? Remember sixth grade math? Remember getting through high school? Remember convincing her to marry you? You didn't think you could, but you pulled it off anyway. You're, you're, life is a lot of doing things you don't feel like doing, and you don't even think you can. How many parents are constantly telling your three-year-old, yes, you can, yes, you can, and they grow, and they grow, and eventually they become proficient in it? Your anger is no different. 
It's going to take work, and it's not going to be fun, and it's not going to be pretty, but if you will get it out of neutral and get it actually in gear and begin to struggle hard against it, you can make progress practically and even theologically. We're told that if you know Jesus, that you're more than a conqueror, that you have victory in Jesus, that he can deliver you from your even besetting sins. So if anger is a problem for you, recognize just in this story what is done, the damage, the hurt that's coming out from the pages of Scripture because of anger. Look at it and run from it. Understand, I have a problem, I need some accountability, and I need to start struggling hard against it. I need to start working at it. It says this in verse number 7, last verse I'll give to you today. In the first month, that is the month Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, that's where we find out there's a five-year gap, they cast pure, that is the lot, before Haman from day to day and from month to month, from the twelfth month, that is the month Adar. So, Haman wants to destroy all the Jews. And to determine what day they should do this on, let's not make this a week-long saga, let's just pick a day and have a purge. They cast pure, or the lots, or you could say the dice. This is actually where the Feast of Purim that the Jews still celebrate to this day comes from. It comes from there was a day appointed that we were all going to die. And spoiler alert, they don't. Uh, they're, they're still around. And, and we were saved, so they call it the Feast of Purim because of the pure, the die right here. And what we find is divination. So when Haman says, let's cast the lots, and they cast the lots before him, very likely the soothsayers, cast the lots, what he's doing is saying, let's get the spirit world involved in this decision. Let's not just pick the day of the month we feel we should eliminate and eradicate the Jews that is convenient for our schedules. Let's actually get the gods involved. Let's let them weigh in on this. So you know that Haman's not an atheist. Haman is, in fact, very spiritual. But it's not good enough to just be spiritual, (laughs) In fact, being spiritual and just spiritual is a very dangerous thing. And the world won't tell you that. The world, by and large, will tell you like, oh, spiritual, do your own thing, you know, whatever, that that works for you, go ahead. Spiritual isn't good enough. When we're talking about him casting lots and trying to have divination and figure out when this day of genocide should be, this is him entering into the spiritual realm, but you have to know in the spiritual realm there are good spirits in bad spirits there are angels and demons there are those that are holy spirits there are those that are unholy spirits and this is i'll be spiritual but it's not of god this is not seeking the lord and you need to know that you should stay away from this stuff what haman is doing is not good stay away from ouija boards and tarot cards and paranormal activity it's it's very in vogue right now on TV, I just saw Discovery Channel promoting a ton of paranormal activity shows to look at and laugh at, and I'm t- stay away from that. It's not a joke. It's real. It's not just it's not just you know tricks and you know, parlor tricks, and and there's really just a man behind the curtain, and the the spiritual realm is real, and it's not all good. So here's Haman saying. Let's invite the demons in, more or less, to determine when we'll kill them all. And the day that they come up with is the 13th day of the 12th month, and they do this in the first month. So there's an 11-month gap 
that now they set the day, put it on the calendar, mark it down, there's the purge, we'll kill them all. We'll see next week how Haman's going to bring this plan to fruition, but this, this is where it leaves. Now let me end today by saying this. I think at the very least, this story so far, and even through the rest of it, does show us very profoundly that God is involved and God is keeping his promises even when we don't see him. We're almost three chapters in, and if you've noticed, God has not been anywhere in the story. There is no mention of God, there is no prayer to God, there is no synagogue, there are no sacrifices, there, there is nothing with God. There's no angels from God, there's no visions from God, there's no miracles from God, there, there's no mention of God at all. And think about just the cliff notes so far. A drunken king parades his wealth in front of a whole bunch of other people and then says, hey, everybody ogle my wife and she refuses to do it, so he divorces her. Esther's parents are tragically lost and she becomes an orphan. You find that there's this dirty king that abducts men and castrates them and abducts girls and uses them for his own pleasure and makes them sex objects. You find this proud, angry man who decides to commit genocide. And we should at least be asking at this point in time in the story, like, where is God in this? Like, is, is he's not, I'm look, I don't see him anywhere. And you have to know that all of these events are setting in motion this domino effect that will ultimately result in the deliverance of God's people. That in the midst of all this sin, in the midst of all these poor choices, even Mordecai bowing down is likely a poor choice, in the midst of this tragedy, that God is still there and he's still at work and he still keeps his promises. And if you really back up and get some perspective and begin to think about the book as a whole, what you find is that if there's, if there's no feast, there's no drunk king. And if there's no drunk king, there's no divorce of Vashti. And if there's no divorce of Vashti, there's no Esther. And if there's no Esther, then there's ultimately no Jewish people that she saves. And if there's no Jewish people, there's no Jesus. And if there's no Jesus, there's no hope. That God is going to take all this mess and he is still going to weave it together in the tapestry. And he's going to use it, not just for their good, but for his glory. And you have to know in your own life, that if you're looking back and saying, man, all of that sin, what, how in the world is God ever going to use that? Not just sin, but these poor choices that I'm, that I'm reaping the results of today. Not just the poor choices, but the tragedy that's come into my life. If you're wondering where is God, you need to know he's still there. We sang about this just this morning, that he does know my name, right? He, do, he does see my tears and hear my cries. That even in the midst of this story, you have to know that God is alive, that God still has a plan, that he hasn't just run away from his throne for a bathroom break and just lost control of everything for a little bit, that he's still in the midst of this. And I want you to know as you move into this week that whatever you're dealing with, and if, and if life is casting a long shadow on you, then you have to know that God's still there. Even if you've done some dumb stuff, God still wants to take that and he wants to use it and he's, he's, not, he's not run away from you and left you all to yourself. He's still there in your sorrow, in your heartache, in your sin even to use that for his glory. If you would, pray with me. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to look at your word for a little bit, to consider some life application 
from Mordecai and from Haman and from Esther and from these verses, and I pray that you